do the affirmation together. I serve others through the work I do. Let my energy ever be a channel of thy love and joy to all. I serve others through the work I do. Let my energy ever be a channel of thy love and joy to all. I serve others through the work I do. Let my energy ever be a channel of thy love and joy to all. Om. Peace. Amen. Okay, great souls. We are... So we're still on Lesson 15, second week on Lesson 15, Effectiveness as an Employer. Last week I went through most of the text, but he has like these 9 or 12 or 16 suggested points about being a leader, and it really seemed worthwhile to go over each one of them individually because they're really the heart and soul of the whole question. So before we go there, yes? So it really struck me where he's um, talking about the employer not putting energy into an employee who is being complaining and diffident and difficult. And I'm guessing this means after really attempting to bring that person along. And I had this image of that person sort of withering on the vine. But I was thinking that it, it's, it could be a very difficult situation. And if you're in a in a big company, for instance, and say that it's a supervisor rather than the boss boss with a bunch of people working with that person, how do you sort of ignore or not put energy into somebody who could create a lot of difficulty? I mean, like some, one, of, one of the people that you're... I, the part I lost you was you're the supervisor, not the big boss. What well, do you have to do with it? It, it uh-huh. just seemed like... in that it would be more of a problem in, in, a, in a big company where you have many teams or groups of people supervised by someone, not just the boss who's just got, say, yeah. a handful of employers. Oh, employees. I see what you're saying. So, well, you know, that, that particular principle, which is uh, accentuate the positive and ignore the negative, um, is a very fundamental principle to leadership. So if it isn't clear how and why it works, it's really an important thing to stick with. So let's spend a few minutes on it. There's a tremendous tendency when you, when you are a leader, and it's kind of an American, kind of egalitarian American attitude there. I think we're fine. I just needed an inch. Um, that we sort of feel like we can't go forward unless every single person is going with us. And we also, there's a... a a tendency when you're in a leadership position that when somebody's not happy that you rush over and you spend all your time time to make that person happy and kind of assuming that those who are doing well will be fine and then I'll spend all my energy over here. So there's two reasons why that's not such a good idea. One is it's like people have a certain um, specific gravity is what Swamiji calls it when he's talking about education for life for children he describes that principle in there when he's talking about when you're working with kids, you have to really understand, but it's when you're working with anybody, what their specific gravity is. Because some people are naturally a little bit underwater all the time. 
And no matter how hard you push them, they've got so much karmic commitment to being just at that position that it's very unlikely that you're really going to be able to extricate them from their fundamental attitude, especially if it's just a work situation. But, but you can still spend tremendous amount of time and energy trying to get that person from minus one to minus one half and at the end of which, you still won't have anyone who's going to be contributing energy. You'll just have somebody who's like a half a, a half a something less downward pulling than they were when you started. And in the meantime, tremendous amount of your creative energy will have gone into just trying to satisfy that person's endless doubts. Whereas if you worked with these people over here who are ready to go and put that same amount of energy into into an object that's already ready to move, then you can get that wheel really running and, and move the whole project forward a great deal with the same expenditure of energy. Um, and then two things happen. Sometimes the magnetism that's created by getting all that energy going will pull this person along far better than when you just spent all your time working with them anyway, or that increased magnetism will cause this person to spin out. And they just simply won't be able to stay in your group and they'll just spin out and go somewhere else. But in the meantime, you've really built something. Whereas in the opposite scenario, you will have built nothing. I mean, we've really learned this in our community and Swami really, he's, he's drilled it into our heads. Um, because we've also found, and everybody's had to learn this lesson in their own way, that the people who are sort of chronically never quite with the program and always just have one more thing they want to discuss with you, um, you kind of bend the energy repeatedly to try to drag that person along and almost without fail, in the end, they, they um, desert you anyway and often betray you in the process and feel somehow that they've been mistreated no matter how much you've ever given them. I mean, we've had that cycle run over like you know, 15 years of trying to make it work for somebody. Swami puts a little touch in here. Um, he has one line. Uh, let me see if I can exactly, where he speaks specifically about this, uh, about working with those, those people. But he says, don't bother to put that energy in them. Here it is. Don't waste time and excessive effort to win him over, him meaning whoever it is. Let others who insist on doing so take on that job. Because what you will also find is there will always be somebody in your group who will somehow feel that you're not being fair because you're not helping so-and-so, and they will insist on spending all their energy trying to take care of so-and-so, and they will fail too, but at least you haven't wasted your time doing it. Now, I don't mean to be so negative about human nature. It's just been demonstrated to me enough times that there's a certain kind of resistance that, that has to cure itself. And you, you, you have to cut your losses sometimes. You can't just feel that my job is to, is to make sure every single person is happy. And that's part of what he's saying in this leadership role. You have to put your mind on the goal. And I talked about it, that a lot last week in terms of magnetism. And also, I mean, it's so frustrating for people who are with the program and ready to go to not really be able to get the attention of the leader because he's way over here, you know, just constantly trying to pump up the leaky tire. Um, now, the, the thing is that you have to also be very skillful in the way you carry that off. 
because it, it, it won't serve you to openly snub someone in such a way that you'll, that you'll give such a person a, 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 a negative magnetic vortex. But between openly snubbing them and not bothering to constantly try to win them and make sure that they're satisfied, you know, there's a, a lot of space. And a lot of it has to do with your inner attitude. You don't have anything against such a person. You're just not willing to work with them. Um, when Swamiji, when we moved here among the few pieces of advice Swamiji did give us, one of them was, he said, find those people who are really with you, with you and give them almost all your energy. <laughs> you know, give most of your energy to the people who are with you. Because that way you build a strong core group. And it was interesting. And I, there, there may have been other reasons for this, but when we first came here, we had an ashram house. And uh, I think um, Chidambar lived in that house. I don't think anybody else who's standing here did. And the house had about 25 or 30 people in it, and the colony leaders before us lived in that house. Swamiji told us not to live in that house. Um, I think that there was, there were, it had partly to do with our personality. I think it, would, it was better for us not to be there. But the other thing that happened was the people who lived in that house, oddly enough, were not necessarily the core of the congregation. Because it was a unique living situation, a communal living. Um, there were certain uh, hardships about the house. There was an insufficiency of bathrooms, <laughs> and it was very cold in the winter. But <coughs> some of the people who lived in that house were core, but not everyone. But if, you, if the leaders lived in the house, they had to spend a tremendous amount of their energy taking care of the house. And what, what we saw by not living in the house is that we were able to sort of relegate that assignment to someone else, and we were able to concentrate on what really was the, the core issue of making the Sangha success. And we weren't sucked in to sort of trying to satisfy people who, for the most part, you know, not all of them, but many of them in the end just drifted off anyway. They just really weren't, um, they didn't have the karma to really be the ones who were going to build the work with us. But he saved us from that because it would have been very difficult in constant proximity not to get drawn into it. And as I said, that is something that happened to those who were here before us. They got dragged down that way by just exactly this, giving too much energy to people who are never going to come forward. Maybe we can just leave the microphone on even when we're not using it. Uh-huh. I heard a good one-liner uh, on this principle. Don't send your ducks to Eagle School. Don't send your ducks to Eco School? To Eagle School. Oh, Eagle School. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you send the ducks to Eagle School, give them a little duck. You know, a little eagle badge. It's it still won't happen. There still be ducks. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh-huh. I don't know. It, no, but it's it's right. It's kind of a humorous way to put. No, but what you're saying yeah. is, you have to be realistic about human nature. Yeah. And you have to also be realistic about your magnetic capacity to change people and how much time you have. Does that make sense to you, Sharmila? Yes. Yeah. And whatever position you're in, you can turn it off if it's too noisy. Whatever position you're in, you know, whatever your scale you're going to be dealing with exactly the same issue. You know, when somebody wants to talk to you, you say yes, but you don't go seek them out. Now, are you feeling good about this? You know, do you understand this? Do you have any issues with this? Is there anything you want to talk to me about? Let me try to explain it to you one more time. Yes? Yes, but. Yes, but. Exactly. Ma. What does Swamiji say in Italian? 
Italian, it's uh, ma è difficile. <laughs> but it's difficult. <laughs> Sometimes we say that to each other, ma è difficile. He said it's too easy to say that in Italian. <laughs> Sometimes you hear that in your own self. That's, you know, that's like your only complaint. It's ma è difficile. <laughs> okay. All right. Any other questions or thoughts? You know, every so often Swamiji makes these lists of the secrets of leadership. And you know, they're really a lifelong study. They're just a master. Anything else that you can say about him? He, um, he, doesn't, he, he never had to even consider how to be a leader. He just knew how to be a leader. I mean, you think of him as Henry I and whatever else he's done in the past. You know, he's been a king many times. And he just understands how groups work together. Um, and... And what he molded out of Ananda, by the time it's all done, it just seems so natural. But he himself makes references in this course to the first 10 or 15 years were not natural at all and were not easy. And even says, you know, the har- there was not harmony at the beginning. And he had many dissonance and he had to, dissonance and he had to really, you know, chart his course through all of that energy. I know in another one of these sessions I shared with you that meeting when he wanted to put the publications building up on the hill and there was such a rebellion in the community against doing it among people who, many of whom walked out at that meeting and never came back. He sort of, Swamiji strategically took a, a stand he knew was unpopular, absolutely held to it and realized it would drive a certain number of people out of the community and he did it on purpose. And I had so much anxiety in the middle of that meeting because I was brand new and I didn't know what was going on because he was threatening to leave unless people agreed with him. And I could see that a lot of people didn't agree with him. But later, when I articulated my anxiety, he looked at me like, you know, child, even though I was a grown-up, and said, basically, he said, I would never have called that meeting if I didn't know that I had majority. I, I had sufficient support from the right quarters in order to do that. Because that would have been folly. You know, you only take a stand like that when you know you can win. And I'm, one of the things that's not in this book that Swamiji says about leadership elsewhere is he says, don't ever back a cause you know you can't win. He says, if you know it's a lost cause, don't identify yourself with it. Don't back it. He says, because one, you'll lose credibility. Well, among, all, among the main thing is you'll lose credibility. You know, you, if you back a cause that's going to lose, then people will think of you as someone who doesn't know, you know what, what to do. You have to be very careful about that. Well, that's quite different. Mm. But even if it's morally right, I mean, the question was, I said, don't back a cause that's wrong. And she, the question is, what if it's morally right? Try to find a way to do it without losing. I, I mean, you have, to be, you have to be practical in your idealism. That's what I was going to say. You know, if, if you lose your whole position and lose all your influence... You have to be very, very sure that it's worth sacrificing for. And not just do that on a whim. And you have to be very, very careful about that. Sometimes, because he talked about that earlier, and he talked about what are the principles that are really worth standing for. And one of the principles that's worth standing for is to be able to do what works according to Dharma, but you have to be practical in that. So you have to be careful, you know, to pack when individual causes arise, and one of the things he says is you have to keep your own emotions in check and be very conscious about how you're deciding. 
Because sometimes what happens if somebody comes to you, for example, with a righteous cause, you get all excited about their righteous cause, and then as it gradually unfolds, you see that this was not a very good position to have taken because you can't win. Now, you know, when, when it's genuinely a moral issue, and there, I remember a couple of lessons ago we talked about this at great length, when it's, you know, a genuine principle, then sometimes you do have to sacrifice yourself for it. But if it's a leadership position in which you have influence, you have to think really carefully about that before you do it. Yeah, it can be, that can be sensitive because if you're a middle manager and you're not really the one in charge, you have to really weigh those issues carefully. Yeah, and that, that would be something that you would have to know intuitively which way to take it. You know, I've been very pleased, and this is only about Ananda, not at all about the dilemma you're raising. I've never had to do anything in all these years of leadership that I didn't wholeheartedly endorse, which is really something, you know. One time I was close to having to support a policy I didn't agree with, but just before I had to support it, it was changed <laughs> because it, wasn't, uh, it was seen by others also that it wasn't be right. I mean, that, that's quite a statement considering how many people are involved and how complex all these years at Ananda have been. But it speaks to the integrity of it. You know, because I've never had to face that. I don't know what I would do. Sometimes I've had to say, it's not my responsibility, so I don't have to have an opinion. I mean, that's not to say that I've always agreed with every decision that was made. But I've certainly never felt I had to stand against it, and I've never been asked to have to do something that I didn't myself, that I wouldn't have sincerely done anyway. But there's a lot of times in situations when I've looked at it and thought, well, you know, no matter what I think, it wasn't, it's not my karmic responsibility. And so if someone else has the karma to have to solve that problem and they've chosen to solve it in this way, even though I might have solved it in another way, it's not my karma because I, I wasn't asked, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't given into my hands to take responsibility for it. So merely because I observe it doesn't mean that I'm responsible for it. It took me a while to figure that out. Because I used to think if I could see it, I was responsible for it. And so therefore, sometimes, even if that person's, that somebody else's decision proves unwise in the end, nonetheless, it was their karmic responsibility to carry that out and to learn from it. That's, that falls in the category of allowing people to learn from their mistakes, whether or not he puts it in here in terms of whether you're supervising them, but it also goes when you're just peers and you're watching someone do something that you may not think is ideal, but it's their, and I don't mean, well, it's their karma, like that, but it's their karma. It's not yours, and if that's how they choose to deal with it, you have to allow them to play it out. And, and that, that also in, is a partial answer to the question of what, even when you think it's morally wrong, sometimes two people will be embroiled in something, and you could think that, well, this one is right, and that one is wrong, and this one's being mistreated, and that one's not... But if you just get calm enough, sometimes you realize, quite simply, well, it's his karma to deal with this. And it's not really my responsibility to intervene. Because, you know, they need to work that out. And if the, even if this one is oppressing this one a little bit, then this one needs to learn to discriminate and stand up. Rather than have someone else rush in and take, be their champion all the time. 
Because everything happens in the way it's supposed to happen. Remember, that was the very first lesson. And that's what I learned from Swamiji as the leader. He, he can counsel everybody, people who are all involved in a controversy with each other, which doesn't happen that often at Ananda, but from time to time it does, that there'll be just disagreements about things. Disagreements are not disharmony. And disagreements are not necessarily arguments. But just people will have different opinions about how we should go forward. And so people will be going forward and will have strongly different views about what would be the appropriate next step. And Swami will be able to counsel everybody on every side of that question and help each person sort of become more clear in what it is that they're trying to do. And, he'll, and you'll never feel that he's, he's against you or for you exactly. He's just helping you. You know, this is your face with this issue, and he'll advise you on how best to sort of, given that karmic predisposition, then perhaps this might be a good action. And then he'll sort of let you go out and do it. <laughs> and, and then people will, each one, sort of refine their own understanding until always, I would say, you know, a resolution is reached one way or another because each person is being elevated to their own next step. And that, you know, that takes a tremendous amount of objective detachment. And um, I'm sort of skipping around here, but one of the things he says here is that basically everybody has their own karma. People have their own agendas. They have their own thing that they're trying to work out. And that's always happening in the context of your project. Your project may be to get so-and-so done, but this person's project may be to learn to concentrate or to get along with that one or to not take things so personally or whatever it might be. And that karma also has to play itself out as a, um, a minor um, whirlpool within the greater whirlpool of what's trying to happen. And that's sort of what Swami will help you. Oh, well, this is what you're trying to work out, and I'll help you try to work it out. And then you'll gradually go forward. And when I was more, um, less experienced, I, I would constantly get drawn into those individual whirlpools, and I, I didn't understand for a long time how to just how to help people individually without taking over. It's very delicate. And that falls under the category of they have their own karma to work out. You have to help them rather than solve it for them. For me, just interestingly, that it came to me actually very d- dynamically one day when I realized that that interfering was based primarily on fear. And it was the fear... I, I realized that other people weren't competent to run their own lives. <laughs> Which, when it finally kind of crystallized, when I articulated it to myself like that, I realized how insulting that was. You know, I felt perfectly confident, I mean, you know, within limits, that whatever God sent me, he would also give me the strength to work with. And I certainly have never had the courage to pray, you know, send me all the difficulties in the world so that I can deal with them. I, I don't... I've never thought to do that. But nonetheless, I sort of feel like whatever happens, it'll be fine because it'll work out. I'll, you know, something will happen. But then when I would see other people faced with their own karmic challenges, somehow I would decide that they couldn't deal with it unless I got in there and sort of helped work with them. And I, I just thought how insulting that is. And also how, like, of course they have the capacity to meet their own karma. How could they not? And that had a, a tremendous calming effect. And I think I, from that day I became a much more effective leader because I started trying to help people help themselves instead of just using what is a very large amount of energy and willpower on my part 
to make things work for people. Do you understand? It's a really, it's a very, very important issue. And then also you're very relaxed. You know, people just bring you magnificent problems. I mean, life is a one huge Italian opera as far as I can see. You know, if, well, Swami jokes about Italy itself. He said, I thought Puccini was exaggerating, but he wasn't. <laughs> but, you know, that life is really quite impressive. And you have to have the, you have to be calm in the face of these things, or else as a leader, which he mentions in here, if you can't keep your own emotions steady, then you're always making bad decisions. You know, and you're always upsetting the apple cart in one way or another. But that has to be deep. That can't be just gritting your teeth and not letting it show. It has to be really a sense of, it's all right, we can work this out. It's all right, you can work this out. (laughs) It'll be okay. Understand what I mean? Yeah. All right. Any other questions on that? Okay. This is um, number one here. He speaks of some of those you attract as employees will understand your ideals and will share them. Others may have priorities that are very different. That's what I was saying a moment ago. Concentrate on those employees who are with you in spirit. Uh, Work especially with them. And then he says, it doesn't matter if your own solutions to problems differ from theirs. There are many ways of approaching almost any problem. The vital thing is that those who work under you share your basic ideals and your spirit. And then he says, in 37 years of Ananda, he says he feels that this policy more than any other is what has developed the right team of leaders who all spring from a central vision. We were talking last week about how Ananda all over the world is the same. Um, the right spirit is the phrase that's a really interesting one there. Now, in, in our reality, it's easier to see, but in all circumstances it is. I remember when I was 21, I had a job in a law firm. I was hired into this law firm. It was Morrison Forrester, Holloway, Clinton, and Clark, which I think has been shortened its name and I think is right over the, around the corner here. And I, but it was up in San Francisco at that time. And I was given a, this was just before computers came in and there was some kind of a, like a magnetic tape machine. It was just like the first, the first tiny step toward automating a lot of the data entry and so on. And I was just a secretarial and I had this job. It was a, it was a great company to work for. And the personnel director was just an absolutely fabulous woman. Even as inexperienced as I was, I could tell that. It was a very comfortable thing. And they even actually, they were so nice and so realistic there that if you didn't actually have work, they allowed you to read. You didn't have to pretend that you were busy. So one of the things that happened, this job I had for three months, and I'll explain to you how and why I was fired. I had it for three months, and during that time, I read the three-volume Valmiki Ramayana. (laughs) And I read it on the bus, back and forth, up and down Geary Street, and then I read it when I wasn't working. And pretty much, almost exactly the day I finished it, I got fired. And I... um, I sort of always felt the job was so that I could read the Ramayana because it was, you know, a thousand pages. It was a really big book. That was when I would get so lost in that story that I, on the bus especially, I would, couldn't understand how people were just carrying on so cheerfully when Sita was in the hands of the evil Ravana, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was completely in that reality. But she fired me at the end of three months, which was my probation period. I thought I was going to get a raise and instead she fired me. She fired me for a very simple reason. I didn't give a damn. <laughs> and she somehow perceived that. And I didn't, 
it hadn't ever even occurred to me that I ought to. You know what I mean? That like, to me it was a job, I was there for the money, and I behaved properly. But she was astute enough to be able to tell that I really didn't care. And um, I was sort of annoyed because I thought if I was competent, that was all that was required. And, and 10 years later, after I had gone to Ananda, which I did very shortly after that, and was myself in a position of leadership, and I had to deal with a lot of people who, you know, didn't really care, even at Ananda, that they were doing the work, but they didn't have any heart commitment to it. It was just like they would do what they were asked and then they would stop. There was no ownership of anything that was going on around. And I realized just how impossible it was to make any progress with such people. And I wrote the woman a letter and I said, you know it's taken me 10 years to understand why you fired me, but it's so obvious to me now why you did. I never heard from her, but I felt I owed it to her to say it. (laughs) You know, but that... I mean, that's part of the right spirit. That's a part of it, which is to to actually, well, I think it was Henry Ford, conceivably, or one of the other great industrialists, who basically said the hardest thing is to find people who will really take responsibility. In other words, who will actually embrace whatever it is that's happening and feel that, you know, this is mine to do. I'm not just doing this because I'm being paid to do it, but this is really mine to do. Or, or because I'm being paid to do it, this is really mine to do. Who will actually take responsibility and you will feel just that little bit of a turn of energy. And so part of what Swamiji has always looked for in leaders is leaders who don't draw, disti- who don't draw lines. And you know, in our own Sangha here, we've talked about this. We've made a great strategic error, I feel. Because... Often the people who are writing the letters or, you know, making decisions will thank people for helping, you know. And it just, it ends up fostering this, you know. And and I will have people who've been here a long time say, well, did you raise the money you needed? And I think, well, it wasn't the money I needed. It was the money we needed, you know. Did we succeed in raising it? But vocabulary is a lot. Thank you. Thank you for doing it. Well, who's doing it for whom? You know, we, we, we haven't succeeded completely, but we're trying to change our vocabulary to congratulations, we did it. Well done, everyone. You know, another huge success. Aren't we proud of ourselves? You know, give yourself a pat on the back. But it, it's just that sort of way of, of looking at it. That's the right spirit. That there is no them. There's just us. We're all doing it together. Now, of course... Many more things are more are also part of that. One of them is um, just not doing it for the glory, but doing it for the principle. Being interested more in truth than in ego aggrandizement. Now, in an ashram, you expect more of that. If you're working in some big corporation, you can't ask for everything. <laughs> but people who do have, even if they're doing the right thing, for more selfish motive, at least if they have a little bit of that spirit, that's what you want. But with Swamiji, he's always looked more for the right spirit than he has looked for competency. I remember there was someone he had as an assistant for a while, and he commented about that person. Was uh, he, he said, you know, it's not, he's not really very competent. He doesn't really get that much done, but I like having him around. He has a good spirit. 
And you know, when I sort of got to know the person better, I realized it was true. Very supportive, very enthusiastic, just very helpful, very cheerful. And it really actually counted for a lot more sometimes than, than this hard-driving, productive energy, but that in itself was demagnetizing. You know, and that was sort of what he said. It's not always necessary that people have ideas that are, are the same ideas that you have. What's much more important is the spirit which, with, with which they do them. Joy, selflessness, good energy, meaning like energetic, um, not downward pulling. And, and put those people, and also Swamiji usually had a principle, of course you can't follow this in business, but that he rarely, or I would say almost never, puts anyone in a position of leadership who asks for it. Meaning he doesn't want people to be leaders in a spiritual work, especially if they're doing it for egoic reasons. In business, you can't be so picky. But you certainly want people who are more interested in creative work than self-aggrandizement. It's a little, as you know, it's, it's trickier, so you have to draw the lines, but whatever you would call the right spirit. And it, over the years with Ananda, it's been really interesting because Swamiji has always been more interested in the spirit being right than the details being right. I remember once uh, when Seva was... Uh, pretty much in charge of everything. This was in the early years. She once explained to Swamiji, Swamiji had been away and he was, he was asking her what was up and she just gave this long litany of this project isn't working and this one's going underwater and we're really losing money over here and this has happened and this has happened. He said, yes, but the spirit is wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> and she had to admit it was. And he was totally indifferent to all those details because he knew if the spirit was right, that sooner or later everything else would straighten itself out. And if the spirit was wrong, it really didn't matter if the details were in place because sooner or later it would sink. You know, and that's, that's a, just as a leader, that's just a really important part of it, to be supportive, to be... And he puts it here and he talks about Ananda. Best of all at Ananda is the unity of friendship, kindness, and goodwill. This is more than you may be able to ask in some of the atmospheres that you work in, but you can at least be a force for that. If you can, you're, if you can personally get a reputation for being fair-minded, for being supportive, for being uh, concerned about the individual, you know, you can really be a, a, a circle within whatever sphere is going on of someone that other people will look to if you have that kind of magnetism. You know, you can be serviceful to all sides of all issues if you can position yourself with right consciousness. And it, that's what this whole thing is about. There was one woman in India who, who actually literally, she, she tripled her salary and went from um, being a supervisor of no one to supervising about 500 people. She said entirely after studying this course. I mean, I might not have the exact details right, but something like that. She just had, ne- had never occurred to her how her own magnetism and her own attitude could completely change her position in her job. And she had this, you know, remarkable shift in her fortunes because she became the kind of person who was always contributing. And in pretty much in any situation, if you have a, a person who's contributing, everyone flocks to them. Because that's just in contributing the kind of energy that, that gives other people more energy. Okay? Um... He says also, it is important, this is point number two, when working with people to realize that each of them may also have a personal agenda and is working out his own karma. I love that phrase, is working out his own karma. 
After all, everyone is centered in and functions from his own ego. And you know, this is true even in the context of the ashram, even in Ananda. This fact may in the abstract seem unfortunate, but it should not be deplored (laughs) any more than we regret the fact that night follows day. What is, simply is, man's ego is a gift to him from God, one not granted in equal measure to any other species. The ego helps man eventually as it prompts him to refine his consciousness to an understanding that his true self is infinite. And he says, one ought not to equate ego consciousness with pride. What it signifies rather is self-awareness. You know, in this way, what we have to work with, and then he goes on to say, the way to reach people is to understand them from within themselves, from your center to their center. That's a really important point there. There's two things that are relevant here. One is... It's very helpful in this context to understand the caste system from the point of view of realizing that people at different stages of development are motivated by different things. The caste system in this sense is the, you know, the, the principles behind defining spiritual, spiritual and personal progress. And the main point is here what motivates people. People at the lowest level, the lowest caste, the shudra caste, are motivated by the threat of punishment. And they're not motivated by idealism. They're not even actually motivated by self-interest. They're just motivated by the threat of punishment. Uh, And you have to force them to put out energy. We use these principles also when we're talking about working with children, which sometimes makes it more clear. You know, some children just won't do anything unless you say, if you don't get up now and clean up your room, you know you're not going to have any supper, or you're not going to have any computer time, or you're not going to be able to be on the television, whatever it might be, Or if you don't, you know, I'm going to tell your father and then he's really going to, whatever it is. The second level is motivated by self-interest. So if there's something in it for them, they'll do it. They'll work hard. And such people, you have to promise them promotion. You have to promise them recognition. You have to promise them money. They won't do it just to do it, but they will work hard if there's something in it for them. The third is the kshatriya, and they're motivated by the principle of it. Look, we're a team here. We're all working together. It's really important that you get your part in. You know, you've got to have it in by Tuesday because that's how it's all going to work. And they'll do it just because the principle says they ought to do it. And the fourth level is attuned to the divine spirit and they move by the will of God. And if you have such a person in your department, put them in charge. (laughs) But what he's saying here is that that's that's the ego developing itself. And, And if you have people, I mean, Swamiji taught one mother about this. She had a son who um, was pretty much disinterested in his own agenda. He wasn't a bad boy at all, but he was very, very interested in his own agenda, and he just really saw no particular reason to cooperate with what anybody else in the family wanted. It just didn't attract him. And Swamiji, they were very photogenic, the whole family, and Swamiji wanted to take a family portrait for something he was doing. And the little boy, who was about maybe six at the time, just crawled under the bed and wouldn't come out. Swami leaned over onto the floor and he looked under the bed and he said, I have some chocolate from Switzerland and if you come out from under the bed and let me take your picture, I'll give it to you. (laughs) And he came right out. (laughs) And uh, the mother had never um, been able to accept the fact that she had to bribe the child to do things. But he was also very interested in money. And from that point, she just started paying him to do what he was supposed to do. And as soon as there was something in it for him, he did it quite cheerfully. 
and in fact, you know, grew out of that gradually to be a, a, a very fine man. But Swami just said, look at his nature. You know, you can't appeal to him on the principle of family. He's not interested. Pay him. And then you pay him, and he'll do the right thing. And he'll do it quite willingly, because that's where his ego development is at. But you know, if somebody is, wants to act from principle and you offer to pay them, um, it, it's demeaning to them. You know, Swamiji talks about when he tried to work as a bellhop to earn money, and he just felt demeaned when he would go and do somebody a favor, and then they'd offer him an extra dollar. He wasn't doing it for the extra dollar. He was just doing it to help them. And, you know, he failed at that job. He had to quit because he just couldn't do it. But you see the difference? But you don't have to consider that unfortunate. You just have to make that part of what you're thinking. This is how to get the best out of these people is to relate to their reality. And then from, from within themselves, this is such a helpful task when you, especially if you have somebody that's a little bit difficult to work with and you can't quite understand them, it's very powerful really to meditate deeply, you know, to meditate and then picture that person, and then just literally try to reverse your perspective so that you're standing inside of them, behind their face, instead of your face looking at them, and just try to feel, and it has to be intuitive, you know, what it feels like to be that person. You know, what, is, what, what are they really trying to make happen? I had this relationship with Ananda that was, it was just a mess. I could never make anything work. And it went from bad to worse. And Swamiji was pretty annoyed with me because I just could never seem to make this, make any harmony there. And there ought to have been harmony. And finally, I just got this idea that I needed to try to help him accomplish what he was trying to accomplish. And, you know, and our goals weren't that far apart. Or I could get him to see my point of view if I started with what he was trying to do. I was always starting with where I was trying to go. And I mean, I remember I happened to be visiting Swami, Swami and I, I finally got to this fellow and I, I just started really seeing what he was trying to accomplish. He was trying to create relationship here and he was trying not to upset this one and he was trying to move this forward. And I just started making suggestions from within his own priorities. And the oddest thing was as soon as I stood inside of him, it really was not at all hard for, for him to also uh, see how my point of view was beneficial. But for months prior to that, he just absolutely refused, almost on principle, to accept anything I said because I never stood inside of him. So it's just the most powerful thing. Just ask, what is this person trying to make happen? From their agenda, not yours. And then that enables you to figure out, oh, well, how can I make our agendas intersect? Plus, of course, everybody on the planet just wants to be seen and validated. I mean, unless you're a self-realized master, you're, you're just looking. And there's, there's, there's absolutely nothing more powerful than feeling like somebody actually knows who you are, sees it from your point of view. Really, I mean, people use the phrase, they really, so-and-so really gets me. They really get what I'm about. It's not that hard. It's just a question of putting aside and taking the trouble to do it. And as a leader, if you can do that, people will become so... Um, well, the next in the same paragraph, he talks about loyalty. I mean, that's how you win people's loyalty, is you begin to show them that you're really on their side. 
you're really on their side in the deepest sense because you're really trying to help them move out of their, from their inner reality forward. This is, of course, Swami's genius. And then Swami says, don't be afraid to test people, especially before you give them a, a position of importance. In other words, don't just assume. You have to also be a little bit shrewd. You can't be naive. And by shrewd, I don't mean that in a bad way, but you have to actually think. You can't just be naive and imagine that everybody's good and everybody's nice. If you want to give someone a lot of responsibility, give them a little responsibility first. You know, and... and allow situations to when you see a situation developing sometimes don't always interfere sometimes just allow it to play itself out just to see how people respond it it allows you to sort of see how what people do under pressure and it begins to tell you who you can really rely on i mean this is a very long distance view of leadership this is i know this isn't necessarily the modern system where people change so often but you really it takes time to get to know people and find out what they're really going to do when they're pressed. So, some, as I say, don't always make everything work out. Sometimes even when you know it's not going to work out or you know it's a little confusing or you know that there's going to be a little bit of a trouble here or something like that, sometimes it's better just to let those things run uh, just to see what people do. Not, not in a negative way, but just to see what they do so you'll know them better. And then you can make better decisions later as to what people are really capable of. As he says here, uh, to be conscious of human fallibility is not to develop a suspicious nature. It is simply to be aware of human realities. Swamiji has this wonderful phrase. When, th- when uh, events have happened in the community that have been disconcerting to people, sometimes he'll say, well, these things happen. <laughs> Just like that. You know, some big fall apart issue. You know, everybody, somebody did so and so to this and this. He just says, well... These things happen. You know, just like that's human nature. You don't have to be cynical. It's just these things happen. Then we all just go on. So sometimes people don't have moral courage. Sometimes people don't have the capacity to be honest. Sometimes people make really egregious mistakes. Mm, these things happen. And so you have to know that they're going to happen. I, I think I said in here that I had a person working for me once who I had to keep her working for me. Um, but she was quite unreliable. So I always made sure, and this is one of the ways you sort of work around, I always made sure that whatever she was doing was in addition to what had to be done. So that she she could always make a good thing better, but I, I kept her out of a position where she could make a good thing collapse. <laughs> but she was always engaged, and when she did come through, she always added. But I learned that she could never quite be counted on to master herself sufficiently to do what was needed. But it was a very nice workaround. I was very pleased with myself for figuring that out. Because she was quite talented, you know. So the, you know, the brochure could go out playing or the, go- the brochure could go out with this nice design across the top. <laughs> but, you know, it always got published. <laughs> that was when I was in the publishing house. And, you know, her additions were helpful. I, mean, I don't remember specifically. It was always nicer when she did it. But if she didn't, we could still make the basics. Because... These things happen. (laughs) Okay. A leader cannot afford to be too easily influenced by emotion, whether by his or those of other people. I'm sure every single person in a leadership position, including yours truly, has been a tough one to learn. 
because sometimes it just looks so obvious to you and you get swept up in it. You know, for me, it's been a really hard issue with counseling, especially couples counseling. That's a lesson you learn really. You crash on that one really hard a few times. You have 50% of the marriage comes and talks to you and you believe that you've heard 100% of the story. And sometimes you get involved in the 50% that you've heard and then the other 50% comes and talks to you and you realize, oh my God, you know, it wasn't really exactly the way it looked. And in all kinds of situations when people come, even no matter how convincing they may be, you can listen and you can be very supportive, but you, you, you can't allow yourself to become partisan ever. But you especially can't allow yourself to be swept up in emotions. That doesn't mean you don't have feeling, and this is where the distinction between feeling and emotion is really important. Emotion is when your feelings have moved you off center and you're no longer able to objectively evaluate and calmly decide You've become partisan, either for or against. But feeling allows you to really empathize with what's happening, even feel a sense of urgency about this, a sense of great compassion, a sense of creative initiative or inspiration, all of those things. But you, you remain um, standing in such a way that you can go whatever direction is needed. Swamiji often uses the image of a skier. You know, you have to, I've only skied a little myself, but I, I know that you have to remain centered on your skis because then whatever comes, you're able to just move with it. If you become too far committed off one side or another, then you're not able to make the next move when the hill comes. And that's what emotion does for you. So it's, you only make that mistake a few times um, if you have any self-control. But it's self-control you really have to... Um, hold on to. Also, it says, don't let yourself be drawn into other people's emotions. Very often people come to you and they really want to convince you that this is desperate and this is urgent. You know, I, I, um, I, I learned something that was helpful once in a way of, of sort of dealing with this. There was this per- person who used to be very, very emotional about everything. And it was impossible to deal with her by simply remaining very calm. It was very annoying to her if you just remained very calm. She was convinced that you hadn't heard her. And she she really also needed to be deeply reassured. So I developed the habit with her of saying, you know, things like, I really do want to understand this. I really want to help you if I can. I really understand how you feel that way. Let's see what we can do. You know, that we're committed to trying to work with her, but not committed to any particular course of action, you know. But that was based on remaining very centered. It's not that you remain dull, but, you, but you're very careful how you commit yourself. And I, sometimes this one person I would say, I'll really do that for you if I can, you know. If I'm able to do that, I would do that for you. If I can make that work, I will. But I have to see if I can make it work. You know, and that both tells them that you want to help them, but it also tells them that you're going to have to look into this a little farther. But sometimes that's a way to sort of um, satisfy people's emotions without buying into it. Because if you're dealing with emotional people, sometimes you have to meet them in their reality. If, if people are very emotional and you're too dry, they, they feel... Um, 
they don't feel one that you've heard them and they never stop talking, which is difficult. (laughs) But secondly, you haven't actually reached out to them in the way that they really need to be dealt with. But that's quite different than being drawn in, you know, to respond accordingly. Swamiji had this in a very simple when he gave me, I think this is in my book, when he gave me rules for how to answer letters when I was his correspondence secretary. And he said, answer people in the same way that they write to you. So you have to tune in to how they've written. If it's a very intellectual letter, then give them an intellectual answer. If it's a very devotional letter, then give them a devotional answer. You know, if it's, if it's a philosophical, then answer them philosophically. Try to feel what vibration they're giving you and then give them the same vibration back. And that's sort of what it is when a person comes to you. And that's partly rhythm. You know, you just feel what their vibration is. And then try to be in their vibration but without getting sucked into it. Oh, yeah. Because... The question was, that's difficult to do. Yeah, that's difficult to do because it requires that you be completely centered in yourself. It also requires that you have no personality of your own. You just can't, you don't have a personality. You're just a servant. That's why leadership is, you know, people think that leadership is like, oh, it's something about me. It's not about you at all. The the leader is the servant of absolutely everyone. The leader simply can't afford to have their own position. They have to simply, they're, they're an artist, and the artist that they're working with is everybody else's energy, the medium. And so they, they have to be able to take everyone's energy and draw it into the picture. And Swamiji once said, very interestingly, said, a leader need have no other talents. You don't have to have any other talents to be a good leader. It's if you can just draw everybody else's energy into focus. But that's what makes leadership fun, is because it's so challenging. To, to really be able to do that. And, it, and it's constantly giving you a mirror of where you really are at. So it really keeps you on your toes. Does that, does that respond to, your, to what your comment is? I guess you have, to have, you have to have a really clear vision of what the solid, the whole picture is because if many different people have their own agendas and want you to fulfill those agendas, it's difficult to... Yeah. I, that's a challenge for me. Well, that's one of the things he says here, is that you have to really always know where you're going. He says, for example, never open a meeting by saying, well, what shall we do? You know, you always have to come into a meeting knowing what you're going to do and trying to at least, you know, have people, if they can improve on it, all right, but you're not really just a blank slate just hoping somebody will have a good idea. And yes, you have to have a constant vision. In our reality, it's you have to have a constant sense of attunement. And then therefore you measure everything in terms of whether it's, it's attuned or not, which is a very wide spectrum. And so if it's sincere, if it's... It, you, you, but yeah, it's, it's tricky. And you also have to have... It's another aspect of... You have to have complete access to, a whole, to a, the whole range of human experience. Because you have to be able to respond to everybody's experience without either getting pulled off center or being put off by it or judging it or not being able to. I, I remember the day that this woman that I was working with um, needed to have a loud argument with someone. And this was like way in the early days of Ananda, but she was totally on edge. And she needed to fight with someone. And she started fighting with me. 
And I was perfectly calm. But we just had this sort of yelling argument. We're very good friends, but we had this yelling argument. She told me that, you know, she couldn't possibly do it because I was so unreasonable. And I told her that there was no question about it. She had to do it. You know, we just yelled at each other for just a couple of minutes in such a way that everybody in the office was listening until she was finished and I was finished. And then we sort of laughed and went on. But I thought later in my, later about that. And I thought, you know, a few years prior to that, I could never have done that because you know, raising your voice made me so scared that I, I wouldn't have had access to that energy because it frightened me. But I had become comfortable with that energy. I wasn't afraid of it anymore. So I was so charmed that she needed somebody to argue with and God was able to use me. Because I could argue without getting drawn into it. It was just what was needed in the moment. And, you know, Swami doesn't rarely raise his voice, but he will give back whatever energy is required. Remember how the stories of masters scolding somebody really fiercely and then winking on the other side and scolding, you know, turning back and scolding? He wasn't angry, but that was what was required. He was relating to who was there and what they needed was him to be totally fierce. So he was fierce. And, but he was never touched by it. He was just whatever was required. You know, parents have to be like that. They have to be able to give their children what the children need. And if they're afraid of certain aspects, then the children suffer. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah. But no, it's not easy. We're talking high principles here. And it's not something that that you ever stop working on. You have to work on it constantly. Yeah. But that's the fun of it. Really, that's the fun of it. Swamiji said once to us as, as leaders of Ananda, he said, You, ha- you also have to take your own well-being into account. It was an interesting statement. He said, you can't be so presumptuous as to think that you also don't have things to learn. And he said once, and to illustrate that point, he said, if, for example, um, you know, a, sort, a harsh decision is required or harsh action is required, but you feel that if you took that harsh action, it wouldn't be good for you to do it, he said, don't take it. Just let the situation go. He said, you have to also take yourself into account. It was very, it was very helpful because it, it, otherwise in a, in a certain position you can start behaving a little falsely because you think it's expected of you. You know, well, I need to be firm here. But if you ever feel that it's dissonant for you to behave in a certain way, he said, don't. If it's not right for you, it's not right. Where there is dharma, there is victory. Where there is adharma, there is not victory. And part of the Dharma is you. He said you can't be, as he said, so presumptuous as to not include yourself in the equation. Which is not exactly what you're talking about, but it is part of it. Sometimes you just have to say, I'm just not willing to go there. Even though this is what so-and-so might need from me, I'm not willing to go there. This is not something I'll do. Okay, why don't we take a very brief break? Swamiji says here, it is always painful when people turn against you misunderstand your good intentions or betray the friendship you've given him. If, or perhaps I should say when, this happens, don't let anger poison your heart. Continue to be their friend in your heart at least. Well, you know, this, he sets a very high standard here, doesn't he? It's just the, it's the same, you know, picture, which is that people have their own agendas and it's not usually yours. And it's just, these things happen. 
it's so so much of distress in human relationships is based on the idea that somehow it shouldn't happen. And so much of what he's trying to say here is this is the nature of reality and the sooner you just sort of embrace it and let it be the way you work, then the easier it'll be. I mean, people just will. It, it's so... Um, it so doesn't matter. That's the only way I can think of to put it. It's just the way things are. But it's a huge project. I mean, you know, and, and your feelings get hurt. You try so hard and then people don't appreciate you. It's a... Uh, you also have to just recognize that this is a struggle for you. I've jokingly said several times in several different classes when somebody once came and quite accurately made a long list of all my shortcomings. And I responded by saying, do you think if I knew how to do this job, I would still be doing it? You know, like, so of course, you would make a long list. I can make a longer list of the things I haven't learned. But that's why we're here. And you have to be as impersonal about yourself in that respect. I mean, in a leadership position, you can't afford to constantly be telling people everything that you're doing wrong. He doesn't list that here, but it's a really important thing not to do. I had this woman that I worked with and I made the mistake of constantly telling her about all my shortcomings. It was an odd thing in that particular case. I was always saying that I didn't have a good aesthetic sense and I really couldn't, I didn't have a visual sense of what was appropriate and this was all in publishing. And then, in fact, I have a very good sense, (laughs) which I didn't really realize at that time. I thought I was being honest. But the fact of the matter was, I had a much better sense than she did. But I had constantly told her that I didn't have this ability. So when I tried to assert it, she turned right on me and said, you don't know what you're doing. And I had given her um, that commitment, that capacity to turn that on me. And then I was stuck. So especially in a leadership position, he says here, you know, you can confide in a few people, but you have to pick your confidants extremely carefully. And you have to be very, very careful about you have, to, you have to be humble, but don't tell your faults to everyone. Because in a moment of anger, they'll turn and use them on you. So, so it's, a, it's a responsibility. It's not, you're not there to, to feel good. You're there to make it work for everyone else. And then sooner or later, people, for their own reasons, will misunderstand you. And that's just sort of how you grow. I am complete in myself. I don't look to the world because these things happen. Um, Swamiji also has this principle, you know, it's the individual that's the most important. It isn't just what we're doing, it's that if people within the, if your people are not thriving, and in elsewhere, Swamiji uses this, uh, the example of, in, our, one of our, in a school, I, I think it was one of our schools years ago, um, I think it was the parents or the students complained about a certain teacher, and the principal sided with those parents against his own teacher. And Swamiji said later, he said, look, he said, those students and those parents are temporary, but your teacher is going to be with you all the time. And if, if, even if your teacher was wrong, you, you have to find a way to be loyal to your teacher because that's really what your enterprise relies upon. So he, he talks about that here. You, you can't you can't sacrifice your employees for the sake of your customers, even though you think your customers are your first consideration. You have to make sure first that your pl- employees are taken care of, and then 
you can take care of your customers because otherwise you'll end up with nothing. It's, it's the dharma of it. And, you know, it's delicate because if people, if your employers are unreasonable, you have to find a way to work around all of that. But at least in principle, you have that priority straight. Um, and then he talks again here about really letting people learn from their own experience. Swamiji talks about the time years ago when Seva came to him with some ideas for the publishing business. This was like 1972 or 73. And he, he had better ideas than she had. And he felt that some of her ideas wouldn't work, and so it proved to be so. But he knew that if he didn't allow her to start having her own experiences and learning what to do, feeling a sense of responsibility and the authority to carry it out, he said he would have to do everything for the rest of his life. And so we have to have the courage to, to cultivate people and allow them. And he said, and sometimes, of course, we're not always right. Sometimes we think something isn't going to work, and it will work. But if people can, if we can have a long-range view of what we're doing, and then, and then you know, it's, it's again, it's this like intuitive thing of knowing how far you can allow it to, to, to fall apart <laughs> before you've lost everything. And you kind of have to have a, a wide band of within which things don't have to be completely nailed down as long as the whole thing is going forward. And you also have to be able to tell when it's pushed too far and be able to pull things in. He, he says here, um, it is important that you be perceived clearly as the one in charge whenever the need for that perception arises. I think that's a very, very interesting statement. You don't have to always be in that position when there's no need for it. But you have to be strong enough in, in the clarity of your vision um, that people just know that behind what's happening, you're standing there. That's also partly what gives people the opportunity, as he says earlier, you know, to, to uh, encourage people to be creative, to innovate, but to have the feeling that you're behind them, that there's, there's a committed strength behind them. He says, you, you, it's important, however, not to be perceived as a dictator. And then he says... The choice between discipline and permissiveness will often be subtle. But if others do not clearly perceive you as the one in charge, the workforce itself may lack any real discipline. On the other hand, if you rule with too heavy a hand, especially in petty matters, people will cease to respect you and will look for ways to get around you. And that's a very interesting point. You know, you don't want to be exercising your authority when it doesn't matter. I learned that from David. You know, whenever possible, let people do it their way. So when you actually have to say, no, we have to do it my way, then um, people will be inclined to listen to you. If you're always telling them that it has to be your way, even when it doesn't matter, they will cease to respect you because they will feel, oh, she's just a control freak. You know, she never lets us do anything our way. And then when it really does matter, you will have spent all your coin already. You see what I mean? I remember we had this uh, years ago when we were first starting our, co- our what is now our colony in Seattle, and it was just a few people together, and David and I were sort of like circuit preachers. We had a motorhome, and we'd drive up there, we'd spend a couple of weeks there, and we'd have a lot of classes and just kind of pull the energy together, and eventually it turned into what we have now, which of course is a huge colony, but I mean, I'm talking 25 years ago, so it was a long time ago. But we had a, a several different uh, center leaders up there, group leaders, in the course of the time before we had permanent leaders who were really well-trained. And, you know, we were learning. I was learning. Everyone was learning. We were sort of trying the balance between guiding them and then letting them have their own 
um, space, and we weren't there all the time. And there was this one man, and uh, he started teaching the energization exercises slightly differently than the way Master taught them. (laughs) And, you know, I had been encouraging his creativity in every possible way, and I remember just having to have this discussion with him that, uh, as I put it, I said, the highway that we call Ananda is very wide, but it has edges. <laughs> you know, it is possible to fall off the edge. And teaching the energization exercises differently than Master taught them is off the edge. <laughs> and he actually never did accept it, but, it, but the others in the group, it was, a very, it was a very good exercise for everyone because it was necessary at that point for me to be perceived as in charge, even though I was in charge from a distance. But I hadn't harassed them about a lot of little things. So when I I really had to come down very definitely that this was not going to work, they were ready to hear it because I hadn't wasted that on things that didn't matter. So whenever you're going to thwart people's natural flow, you have to ask yourself if this really matters. And if it does really matter and you have the support to take the stand, then don't hesitate to take it because there are times when you just have to say, no, in this case, we have to do it this way. I mean, best if you can win them, but one way or another, if you have to, you have to put it down. And so it's, it's a subtle thing. This is where, you, when you're, if you're going to be a leader, you have to really be a leader. You can't actually be afraid of the power or the position or the decision-making or the responsibility. You have to be very comfortable with that. You have to feel that when it really comes down to it, this is my responsibility and I'll take it. But you think of it, it's not like it's a prize and it's not like, oh, so-and-so gets to make the decisions. This is your responsibility. That's what I've often had to say to people in the course of things at Ananda. You know, I would say sometimes, you know, it's not really like I, I want to do this, but I have the responsibility. And when I see that it enters into the realm that I'm responsible, I have, to, I have to step in. Otherwise, I would be happy to let it do whatever. But I am responsible. And if I am responsible, this is how I see it. This is how it has to be done. And if you're comfortable with that and there's no, you're not running another agenda and you're not backing into the limelight and you're not apologizing for that, it's just a fact. So, so and that's also why you have to maintain a certain dignity in a position of leadership. You know, you, you, it's, it's not, again, like you want to be insincere, but you, you have to respect your own position and realize that you can't just be one of the boys or one of the girls, and you can't always be telling people all the things that you're afraid of and everything that's wrong with you, I mean, except insofar as it's, it's useful to do so. But you can't be doing it just out of a, a compulsive unwillingness to wear the mantle of what's been asked of you. Swami uses the word dignity. It's very sweet. I remember at one point, he, um, he, when he was first developing the Italian community, he had to sort of suggest to people that they just needed to take themselves in their position more seriously. He said, not as individuals, but you represent Master. And I always think about that with Swami Kriyananda. He always dresses, when he goes out in public, sort of just a little bit nicer than most people do. He'll wear a jacket, he'll wear a nice shirt, he'll wear slacks. He just he he, he never goes out in public in a, a way that's not dignified. And it's not because he cares, because he really is entirely indifferent, but he he's always representing master and he knows that. 
And so whatever leadership position you have, if, if, it's, if you're not representing the guru, you're representing your company. You're representing your position. And you, you just need... I mean, I really feel as a leader, you need to be just a little more dressed up than everyone else in the room. And I, I mean, I don't really know if that's literally true or not. But in one way or another, you have to maintain the dignity of your position, whatever that looks like, so that people will, will have the confidence that you're in charge. Because otherwise, as it says, the whole workforce gradually loses discipline. Because there's no a spine You've got to be the spine of the whole organization. You can do that quite joyfully. You can do that quite humbly. You can do it with a great sense of humor. But you can't ever really put that down. Because you're the servant of everyone. They all rely upon you. It's a great honor. Okay. Um, He says, give as much credit to others as possible. Don't try to hog the credit. I love when he says, even if an idea was your own, ideas themselves are impersonal. They can't be owned by anyone. In another context, he said, if somebody raises an idea that you've already thought of, train yourself not to say, yeah, I thought of that too. You might think that's encouraging, but what that tends to do is that tends to take the limelight off the person who's had that idea. Even if it was your idea that they've just picked up from somewhere. I mean, ideas are impersonal. What difference does it make? But of course, again, you have to be completely sincere. You can't always be lavishing praise on others. To flatter people is not the same as to be supportive. And people who like to be flattered are not necessarily going to end up being your best workers. But whenever possible, give credit to others. And even if you did it, you were key in it, as much as possible, bring everyone into it. Swamiji always talks about his father in this respect who received the Legion of Honor in France for work he did in the oil fields there. He developed a very important oil field. And he said, his father was honored, and he said, his father said, it was a team effort. And Swamiji said, that's all he ever heard his father say about the award. He never mentioned it again. We did it together. It was a team effort. And so no matter how critical your personal role is, don't ever hesitate to just, and if if you're thinking about whether people are noticing you, then you really need to go deeper. Because it's not going to work. Okay. And he has this little point which I just... Don't ever begin a staff meeting by asking for ideas. That's a very important thing. Have an agenda and make sure everyone follows it. Make a proposal and then invite suggestions. But never let the discussion degenerate into a conversational free-for-all. Hold the reins in your own hands. It's something Swamiji has always done. And this is not the way everybody does things. But you know... If you're the leader, you've got to be driving it. You've got to give a lot of room for people to be creative. But you can't ever just sort of turn over the whole situation to everybody. I mean, I, my, I shudder every time I'm in a situation where you feel like nobody has an idea and we're just hoping and groping. And, you know, big groups of people are not smarter than individuals. <laughs> and, and sometimes in those settings, we've talked about it earlier, things can just go completely awry. But Swami, even though he'll be very open, you always feel that, that he's got a vision behind it. And he'll change on a dime, but he won't change because he has nothing. You know, he won't change because he had nothing and then you gave him something. He'll change because you built on whatever he was saying and then you improved it. And that's, again, people are more confident if, you, if they feel that from you. That's a very subtle point. But Okay, and then the last thing. 
And, and I, he said, the extent to which you need to make clear the fact that you are the boss, as opposed to being everyone's friend, cannot be written into any system of rules. The extent to which you have to resolve it intuitively. And that's what I was saying earlier. You, you just, it depends on the maturity of the people you're working with. depends on the purity of their motive. It depends on your own motive for wanting to befriend everyone. I mean, there's just lots of things. There's a lot of intuitive energies that have to be dealt with there. Your own reluctance to take real responsibility. All of these things. The last thing he said here, and I haven't quite done these in order. The most important rule for you as the leader is to be always centered in yourself, in the spine. From that inner center, you will be able most effectively to influence others, each of them at his own center. Visualize yourself as relating to others center to center. This is so sweet. You know, I think somebody asked me recently, maybe it was even in this class, you know, how, how is it when I speak? About Master Swamiji talking about speaking to Master when he talks. You know, just feeling that everybody you're with, it's just heart to heart. Even if it's the most, you know, mundane, intellectual, pragmatic, Um, non-spiritual environment, if you first just feel there's a heart-to-heart connection. I've had so much fun with that, especially when I travel, because a lot of times language isn't there. If you really just start from the heart, even if you're just dealing with, as he he talks about, even the janitors, even everybody, just this sort of recognition of the divine unity. And then even if you're a little bit impersonal, um, you know, a little bit business-like about it. Everybody wants to be recognized. And if you recognize people's reality first on the deepest level, then you'll be able to influence them center to center, from heart to heart. So that's Swamiji's advice for how to be an effective employer, which turns out to be an effective leader. Lesson number 15. Next week we'll move on to 16. We're churning our way right through this course, aren't we? Okay. Thank you all.